Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, trouble at the Bible Translation Organization Wycliffe Associates continues. We'll have an update. Also on today's program, the latest in our Generous Living series. See, most of our stories focus on people giving away money, but in today's story, we feature a woman who literally gave away part of herself. But we begin today with the latest chapter in the ongoing saga of Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University. Liberty University in Virginia announced on Monday that its board had chosen an interim president to lead the school. See, this decision comes just a few days after Jerry Falwell Jr. began an indefinite leave of absence following an inappropriate social media post. Jerry Prevo, who had served as chairman of the school's board of trustees since 2003 and recently retired as the senior pastor of a Baptist church in Alaska, has been named to assume the the role of acting president. That'll take place immediately, Liberty University said in a news release. Prevo expects to work from the Lynchburg campus starting on August 17, and he'll step aside from his position as chairman of the board for the duration of his new role as interim president. Prevo spent 47 years as a pastor of Anchorage Baptist Temple before retiring just last year. And uh, he's known for his firm stance on traditional family values and his influence in Alaska politics. Now, Jerry Falwell Jr. has been a high-profile Trump supporter and ally, and he's led uh, the private evangelical university that was founded by his father, uh, Jerry Falwell Sr., for the last 13 years. The university announced in a one-sentence statement last Friday that Falwell was taking a leave of absence. The statement didn't elaborate, but Falwell's departure came after he had posted a photo of himself posing with his pants unbuttoned and his stomach exposed and his arm around a young woman who was not his wife. Now, Falwell apologized for that photo, which he said was taken during a costume party while he was on vacation. But Prevo said in a statement last week that uh, Liberty had experienced unprecedented success both academically and financially under Jerry Falwell Jr.'s leadership. But he went on to say this, unfortunately, with this success and the burdens of leading a large and growing organization, there comes substantial pressure. Liberty alumni has been critical of Falwell and increasingly vocal about wanting new leadership. Yeah, on Monday, a group of alumni revealed that they had started a new nonprofit organization called Save 71. Uh, that's a reference to the year that Liberty University was founded. Uh, the group wants to mobilize alumni, students, and faculty behind reform at the university. Liberty, uh, this group, say 71 says, needs to repent of its sins before seeking redemption. The group posted on its website uh, a call for an independent committee to seek the longer-term replacement for Jerry Falwell Jr. It goes on to say the Board of Trustees must acknowledge the damage President Falwell has done to Liberty 
and the hypocrisy and corruption that has soaked into parts of its culture. Among the alumni calling for a permanent change in leadership is Colby Garman, who's the pastor of a large Virginia-based church called Pillar Church. He said that the university would be best served by a president who is not trying to amass political power and is able to thoughtfully convey the school's mission from a deeply Christian perspective. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. was one of the earliest Christian conservatives to endorse Donald Trump's first presidential campaign, and he's routinely been in the spotlight since then for a series of controversies in both his role at Liberty and in his personal life. Now, Warren, another college that's been in the news this week was Bryan College in Tennessee. Yeah, Bryan College has been locked in a now about two-year-long dispute with the National Association of Christian Athletes, or NACA, uh, over the ownership of a $6 million camp in Tennessee. NACA claims that Bryan College engaged in what they're calling wrongful and conspiratorial actions to essentially wrestle ownership of the camp. Both organizations have sued the other, so what's the latest? Last week, a judge dismissed NACA's lawsuit against Bryan College, but this week, NACA asked if it could appeal that decision, a sign that neither organization seems to be willing to put this conflict behind them. Now, according to NACA, the camp in question, it's called Fort Bluff Camp, um, which it created in the 1980s, was its most prized asset and the foundation of its operations. NACA hosts thousands of youth, some traveling from all over the southeastern United States, to participate in tournaments and other events on this particular property. Uh, In order to operate, NACA relies on tournament fees and fees from sports camps that take place there. NACA says that Officers at Bryan College joined NACA's board after NACA fell on hard times in 2009 in the aftermath of the uh, financial crisis, the Great Recession. Bryan College used its majority on the NACA board to then transfer ownership of Fort Bluff Camp to Bryan College in 2016. But NACA's lawsuit said that that was an inherent conflict of interest. NACA says that instead of acting in the best interest of NACA itself, the Bryan-dominated board of directors acted in the best interest instead of Bryan College. But as you said a few uh, few weeks ago, the circuit court judge Justin Angel sided with Bryan, dismissing NACA's complaint. Uh, the judge said that NACA had waited too long to bring its lawsuit. Well, that's right. But NACA says that its complaints are not time-bound, and it has legal precedent on its side. NACA now wants the Tennessee Court of Appeals to make a final determination. Well, we need to take a short break now, but when we return, new information about the Bible Translation Organization, Wycliffe Associates. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, a number of key leaders have recently left Whitcliffe Associates following a series of stories by Ministry Watch. Yeah, Ministry Watch started reporting on Wycliffe Associates uh, early in the year when Wycliffe Associates resigned uh, from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Our examination of Wycliffe Associates found that the organization owned a private plane, primarily for use by its president, Bruce Smith, and that it had spent tens of millions of dollars in fundraising to promote a Bible translation program that many Bible translation experts have said is not as effective as Wycliffe Associates claims it is. Now comes word that a number of key senior executives have left the organization. Perhaps the most high-profile departure from Wycliffe Associates was that of Brent Robb. Uh, Brent Robb was the vice president of operations at Wycliffe Associates. He had served in that role for 16 years, and he left Wycliffe Associates in late May. Other recent departures include Joe Gervais, who served in a variety of roles for Wycliffe Associates uh, for the past four and a half years, most recently as the Pacific Regional Director. In February, at least three senior members of the Wycliffe Associates fundraising team departed, and Dan Kramer, another recent departure, had spent 11 years at Wycliffe Associates as Director of Education Services and then Executive Director of Strategic Programs. And it seems like a lot of people leaving all at once, but I understand that the departure of Dan Kramer is especially significant. Yeah, Dan Kramer's departure was significant because he had helped create the controversial MAST program at Wycliffe Associates. MAST is that program that I mentioned a few moments ago, and it stands for Mobilized Assistance Supporting Translation. MAST had been a key part of those fundraising efforts at Wycliffe Associates in recent years, but it was scrutiny of this program by the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability that ultimately caused Wycliffe Associates to resign its membership in the ECFA. And there's been a lot of turmoil over the years at Wycliffe Associates. Yeah, in 2017, shortly after President Bruce Smith decided to make the promotion of master priority for Wycliffe Associates, a number of senior staff left then, as well as a couple of board members, Eric Watt and Dr. Alex Abraham. Uh, among the staff members who departed in 2017 were the chief language officer, Dr. Perry Oaks, and Tim Jor, who was at that time the director of translation services. Now, Warren, I'd like you to update us on another story that Ministry Watch has been following for a while, and that's the story of megachurch pastors Andy Savage and Chris Conley. Yeah, Chris Conley is a pastor who resigned just over two years ago from his church in Memphis for tolerating sexual abuse on his staff. And the staff member who had engaged in that sexual abuse was Andy Savage. This week, Chris Connolly announced that he was returning to the pulpit, starting a new church in Memphis, where uh, he had resigned just a couple of years earlier. And Andy Savage started a new church in Memphis, too, last year. 
But I understand that the woman uh, Andy Savage abused is speaking out. She is. Her name is Jules Woodson. And I want to be clear, we normally do not share the name of abuse victims at Ministry Watch, but Jules Woodson herself has gone public uh, with her complaint, so we feel free to do so. Uh, She tweeted this week that, and and I'm going to read directly from her tweet, not only has my abusive pastor Andy Savage started his own church, but the pastor that hired him and supported him and was subsequently fired, Chris Conley is coming back to Memphis to start a new church. Where and when does the madness end? Let me fill in just a few details, Warren. Uh, Jules Woodson said that the sexual abuse took place in 1998 when she was 17 and Savage was 22. Savage was a student pastor at a Texas church at the time, and Woodson says that she told church leadership at the time, and the church leadership said that they would handle it. Yeah, they did say that, but they didn't. No one filed criminal charges at the time. Um, And as you mentioned, uh, Jules Woodson was a minor and Andy Savage was 22 years old. So there could have been criminal wrongdoing involved there. In addition, of course, to the fact that (laughs) there's a a clear moral uh, wrongdoing here. Uh, Savage eventually moved on from that church to continue his career in ministry. But in January of 2018, in the midst of the church Two movement, uh, Woodson reported the incident to the Montgomery County, Texas Sheriff's Department. They did not prosecute Savage because the statute of limitations had expired, but the investigation did lead to the resignations that we've already mentioned of both Connolly and Savage, and there was a resulting media firestorm as well. Warren, one more update before we take a break. Uh, There's new developments in a story of the Alabama pastor and state legislator. Last week, the pastor resigned from his church because he had helped lead a birthday celebration for the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, Nathan Bedford Forrest. What is the news this week? Yeah, a week after resigning from his church, the Alabama pastor and Republican state legislator uh, Will Dismukes is now facing felony theft charges. Um, He's the former pastor of Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. He turned himself into the Montgomery County Detention Facility on August 6th and was released on a $5,000 bail. Dismukes, um, who is a legislator who represents that same town, Prattville, uh, has been charged with first-degree theft of property and is accused of embezzling money from his former employer, Weiss Commercial Flooring. That's a company in Montgomery, Alabama, where he worked before being elected to the House of Representatives in 2018. Dismukes refutes the charges, and his attorney, Trey Norman, questions the circumstances surrounding the investigation. Yeah, that's right. He does. Uh, Dismukes' attorney said, in the political climate we're in right now, the timing of all of this is really interesting. But the Montgomery County District Attorney, a man named Daryl Bailey, appeared confident whenever he appeared at an August 6th press conference to announce the charges. Uh, Bailey said that after countless hours of investigation, which consisted of witness interviews, obtaining bank records, and gathering other evidence, a decision was made by myself and prosecutors in my office, along with these investigators, that probable cause existed that a crime had been committed. The warrant was signed for an amount exceeding $2,500 
dollars. I will tell you that the alleged amount is much more than that. Now, if Dismukes is ultimately convicted, theft of property first degree is a class B felony and carries two to 20 years in prison as a possible punishment. There's a lot more to this story, and you can find it by going to ministrywatch.com. And we're going to have to take another break, but when we return, the next installment of our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we like to conclude our program each week with a good news story and a story from the Generous Living series. And I, I love these stories. They, they're inspiring and they're challenging. But Warren, I have to admit that sometimes I have trouble identifying with them because a lot of the stories we reported on uh, involved rich people giving away a lot of money. And let's be honest, they don't really have to live on all of uh, what they make. But today's story is different. Yeah, it really is uh, different, Um, though I should add that we shouldn't take away from the stories of anyone who chooses to be generous, either rich or poor, with the resources that God has entrusted to them. And I should also add that those very stories were the ones that inspired Rachel Erkman, who is the subject of today's story. She was, in fact, attending a Journey of Generosity weekend retreat. Now, these retreats are sponsored by Generous Giving, an organization that we've mentioned before on our podcast. Generous giving helps people, often people with wealth, become generous in how they give and live. And it sparked a process of surrender for both Rachel and her husband, Mike, uh, towards becoming more generous with their finances. But being financially generous is one thing. What she didn't expect was for God to ask her in 2018 to give away part of her liver. Yeah. Mike, her husband, is a commercial real estate broker in Boise, Idaho, and he had purchased a commercial property management company in 2017. In the process of you know getting to know all of the employees, Rachel met and Ainsley Miller. Ainsley Miller, one of the employees in her husband's company. Uh, Rachel found out that Ainsley's husband, TJ, had a chronic liver disease. Um, There was a procedure that surgeons could use to help TJ, but it involved removing part of the liver from a living donor and transplanting it to the recipient. The liver regenerates in both patients. At least that's supposedly the way it's supposed to happen. And to make a long story short, that's exactly what they did. 
Yeah, Rachel had a job selling medical equipment, and so she encountered doctors every day in her job. And when she asked the doctors about donating a portion of her liver, they all said it was a bad idea. But Rachel said that she really felt like that this is what the Lord wanted her to do, that the Lord was speaking to her heart. And so she said, I came to terms with the Lord on that, drowned out that human worldly perspective on things. Ultimately, the surgeries were performed in July of 2018 at the University of Utah Hospital, and they were successful. Within six weeks, Rachel said that her liver was mostly regenerated and she was 100% back to normal. Yeah, and TJ was also doing well, at least for a while. His eyes, which had been yellow during the time whenever his liver was malfunctioning, turned white again, and his skin that had become a dull gray began to become a healthy pink again. But the doctors told him that there would likely be complications, and in fact, there were. Uh, I should say, in fact, now, uh, as we're into the middle of 2020, TJ's liver disease is, in fact, back. And Rachel said that it was a hard reminder that obedience doesn't always guarantee a specific result. We don't know the end of this story, Rachel said, but that doesn't minimize the sacrifice. It became apparent to me, Rachel went on to say, that God is in the business of blessing. God is going to bless that person and he's going to let you in on it. I was honored uh, that we have been invited into God's story. That is both absolutely beautiful and a very hard story. Yeah, it is a hard story. Um, And of course, there will be more to come because we don't know what the ultimate outcome of TJ's disease will be. And I'd like to invite our listeners to read the entire story as it is now up on our Ministry Watch website. That's ministrywatch.com. And I'll make a commitment to our listeners as well that we'll keep following this story and posting updates on TJ's condition. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing that story, Warren. Now, Unfortunately, our time together is coming to an end today. Yeah, I know. But before we go, I want to remind everyone that we started posting a second weekly episode to this podcast. Natasha and I will continue this weekly roundup of the week's Ministry Watch news, but the extra episode will be an interview with a writer or a leader of a ministry that we have a reporting partnership with, uh, or someone else that I just think would be of interesting of interest to you, our listener, in the area of charity, philanthropy, transparency, and accountability. My first First guest uh, was Paul Gladder, who is the editor of Religion Unplugged. He's the head of the journalism program at the King's College in New York City, and he's also been a longtime reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I'm really excited about adding this new feature to the podcast, and I hope you'll check it out. And finally, I want to remind you that there's a quick and easy way for you to support the program, and that's simply to rate us on your podcast app. The more ratings we have, the better the podcast performs with search engines. And you can also, by the way, leave a comment when you're leaving us a rating. I can't respond via the app to your comments, but I want you to know that I read every one of the comments, and I find them both encouraging and helpful.
The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Sean Hendrick, Danielle Jackson, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. May God bless you.